I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure this evening to welcome Amy Aker and Joelle Taylor. Amy's the founding editor of Bad Betty Press, and Mother Song, her debut collection from Bloomsbury, is one of the most eagerly awaited collections of the year, and now finally here. Um, Amy will be reading from the work and then in conversation with Joelle Taylor, the founder of Slam Ambassadors, the UK's Youth Slam Championships, whose fourth collection, Canto and Othered Poems, won the T.S. Eliot Prize in 2021. Um, they'll be reading and in conversation for about 45 minutes, following which we've got time for questions from the floor with this, the roving mic, uh, following which there's time uh, to buy books, to get them signed, to recharge your drinks and such like. I just turn over to you. Thank Good evening you. and welcome. Thank you so much, Sam. <laughs> Thank you, uh, London Review Bookshop, and welcome here tonight to this uh, In Conversation with Amy Aker. Like John said in his absolutely brilliant introduction there, this is an eagerly awaited first collection from a poet who's been writing, uh, as long as I've been in London, has produced some really extraordinary work. And this, the first full collection, is a deep excavation of motherhood um, and by what we mean about motherhood. So it's as much about uh, AI intelligence, it's about the pregnancy of grief, it's about motherhood in all its different incarnations and what that might mean, as well as a kind of charting of a life. But rather than listening to me go on and on about it, I'm going to introduce Amy to the stage for a moment. She's going to read for about 15 minutes, after which I'm going to ask some questions and embarrass both of us, and then we'll open the floor up for another 15 minutes for questions. But first of all, please welcome Amy Aiken. Um, hi, everyone. Right, let me just get used to this um, setup. I've got a mic on the table there. I just have to check I'm not going to kind of throw it off the table in a moment of um, gesticulation. I think, that's, I think that's all right. I think that's fine. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for coming out today. It's really nice to see. Um, a lot of smiling faces, uh, a few faces that I haven't seen for a long time, um, which I'm very excited to see. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, I'm going to start with um, actually the first poem in the book. This is a poem that I wrote when my daughter was a few months old. And um, 
you know, you have this really strange feeling when you're, you're suddenly responsible for keeping this tiny, tiny person alive and it's quite terrifying. Um, and I think I kind of got possessed by a kind of an animal mother or I was kind of alert to every, um, every threat. And, um, and also really kind of amazed by how a lot of things that had seemed um, like quite a mundane part of daily life, like going on the tube, um, suddenly became like a real site of fear. Um, so I wrote this poem. In the wet, aired trenches of the tube, I was a tigress, cub in jaw, sniffing out cordite and saltpeter, spying war shapes in the dark. I saw the parched black mouth of the track, a long marauding animal, limbless slither, crab apple on tongue. My child, months from the womb, hung from my teeth. I ferried her by the neck and saw her death everywhere. I hung on the grit-kissed wall until the train pummeled in to replace imagination. Forgive me. I saw things I couldn't tell my therapist. I mauled thought to silence and counted my steps and talked to myself in dissertation. I saw others, smelt their milk in the slow lifts, smiled at their litters and wondered if they too saw their babies fall if they fought escalators tumbling with fear, if we were all staring down the same muzzle, waiting for the grip to drop from our own hands. Thank you. <clears throat> um, this next poem is about my daughter embarrassing me in a graveyard. It's called Dance on My Grave, and it's, um, it's named after a YA novel of the same name by Aidan Chambers. This book came out in, I think, maybe 82, and it was quite a seminal work because it was one of the first YA novels to have a gay-positive storyline. And the way I encountered it was that it was in my school's library, and I borrowed it from the library and never gave it back. And... Um, and I didn't really talk to anyone about it, but I found I was really excited by this book that felt like a, a really kind of special secret. Um, and um, yeah, I just, I just loved it. So this is Dance on My Grave. In St. Mary's garden, my child is jumping on graves. I try to catch her, unruly pigeon Winging between broken sundial, benches that remember. She wants me to dance with her among the dogs and tilia, stone chests and heart's tongue, and I try to explain. Someone's under there. A character actor I can't place pretends not to see us. I keep my eyes on the slabs. Kid kicks in tap tails and top hat holding a leaf. Knows without knowing how Russian sunlight, death's withholding, makes us want to turn up the bass. Dance on My Grave was a book I stole from school. Library plastic wrapped thrill about two boys, 
Southend geeks who held each other from the ground up. One uprooted, kept holding, while the other became earth swallowing still in the flower of grief. And as I read, I plunged my tips into dirt, downing fistfuls of queer and glowing language, rose and petaled. My cyber dog dyed head and many colored baptisia spread and held and concealed between pages. Time capsule to raise later. There's nothing quiet about the dead. Nitrogen ghosts fibrillate soil into spring that births birdsong. Coral bells are bursting, budding or spent, and I think of pissing in bushes. The way bark feels against your bareback dark yards haunted by lighters and cider. Child of mine sways, resurrects a chorus line of vertebrae. I cave, rest on the unwritten corner of a ledger stone. I'm sure they won't mind. And I keen for the thunder if I were to rise in rhythm, lift a boot and slam it down, feel the dirt give me back. Thank you. Cheeky swig while I'm here. Um, A couple of years ago, I turned the age that my dad was when he died. And um, anyone else who's had that experience will know what a strange time that is. and then to overtake your parent and become an age that they they never reached. And um, I wrote this poem as it was was approaching and it was kind of a a little cloud over me that I I just knew was there. And it was also locked down, so um, death was just that bit closer to the surface. This is called Azriel. At the age you are now, your father's body had built a nest for an angel. You, key stage two, couldn't place why he coughed wing beats, cried shameless. The year white coats saw the stowaway, photo bomber in a radio wave. Today, Tapping 40, your neck convexes, you bookmark testaments. Nothing makes sense like a toddler walking around with your face hurling a sippy cup at the wall. This summer we're home, raising our skirting boards and the bees are brave. Buzzing thickets comfort crushed shale into shade and you run to remember not all angels are hereditary. In one version, God drops a leaf and seven billion eyes read your name. 40 days later, a test card. This summer, we cling to our TVs like gastropods on a rock. The land before time washes up on Netflix. Littlefoot's mum is dead. Like Simba's dad is dead. 
Like Bambi's mum is dead. Like Bastion's mum is dead. If this is how we level up to protagonist, you'd rather swim in the shadow of a demiurge. You swing your daughter Dizzy in the garden to remember not all childhoods are hereditary. At the age you first met memory, she spies her shadow, takes it everywhere, but watches Mama Dinosaur die dry-eyed while you break on the Black Friday couch. 4,000 wings trying you on for size. Wonder why your kid's hypothetical loss stings sharper than your lived one. You ask your mother. She says when the angel came, she couldn't look directly at your grief. A wooden doll inside hers. You say, kids are resilient. You are okay. She says, you weren't though, were you? Um, I'd like to introduce this next poem firstly by apologising um, to my mum and secondly by reading a quote from Adrian Rich who said, I believe increasingly that only the willingness to share private and sometimes painful experience can enable women to create a collective description of the world which will be truly ours. This is atheism. Dear Lord, fix my broken vagina that I may climb the tree of longing and find myself in its branches, feet tucked under knees, pleated skirt and no pants. Let the freckles on my husband's arm tickle not my heart but lower. Let the music of my cunt sing like the hot tap or the vibrato of the throat attached to rash hands dripping with their own enemy. Dear Lord, make porn better. <laughs> or good porn cheaper. Or just make me richer. Let the blonde on the tube platform bend again to tie her shoes when I'm alone. Let my husband clean the bath or fix a fault in the pipes that I may find him on his knees, earth-greased arms holding the house up, behind him, a perfect pout. Dear Lord, let our daughter not wake as I guide his face to my waistband. Dear Lord, please fix my broken vagina because I have so many tasks in the day and I need something. I've already changed the sheets, dear Lord. I am tired of thinking about nuns or schoolgirls or rape. I want to live in his eyes. I want my body to strike, to strobe on the bed with us and not slink a smudge on the wallpaper or draft tweet. I am scared. That I've politicized touch to the point where I have canceled my own desire and I am tired. I am so fucking tired all the time. Dear Lord, I used to have an awesome vagina. It got everything right and made friends easily. <laughs> Dear Lord, since leaving home, I have belonged to 21 houses. If you leave skin everywhere, I must be paper. Dear Lord, 
it's me at 14. Held by hands, I recall more clearly now there is a smaller me running through the house, dear Lord. When he holds me close, I am butter from the fridge. Sticking to rip and impossibly stiff, but I remember what it feels like to melt. I know I am in here somewhere. Um, I'm going to read a poem that was um, published in Bath Mag, um, selected by my good friend Boyegor de Banjo. Um, this poem's about a young man who I knew when I was also a young person and we were at um, summer camp together and we were on kind of opposite peripheries of a friendship group. Um, the core of which was much more confident and cool people. And we were like the kind of sad, quiet weirdos on the outside and didn't speak to each other because of that. But I felt a kinship to him. Um, and we spent maybe two or three summers together. And then I never saw him again um, until one day I was visiting my dad's grave um, I was probably about 30 and I saw his name on a stone and for a split second I thought that dead guy's got the same name as James um, and then I thought oh finding out you're dead by walking past your grave I ask your name what it's doing on a stone it doesn't answer, because that's not how names talk. When I see your name, I'm not in a poem, and nothing is the colour of anything else. I'm locked on gravel by the loam soil houses of my dad and grandparents, who aren't there, although their names are. Since your name doesn't have much to say, I ask the stone. It also doesn't answer. Stone is a dense, unyielding claim, and it is much heavier than a soul, which is why they put it on top of dead people. When you line stones up like that, you have a deconstructed guessing game or a theater of closed mouths. Your name shines as if new, as if rain got lost in the shape of someone, as if nothing, but the dates kill you. I don't know why. I don't want blame to paint a picture on my phone. I ask a blank page why it's made of stone and it tells me a version of a story and then another. In the versions, the letters of your name shimmer like sun on the smile of a razor, shine on curved glass, a puddle in a pothole, or any other thing that takes light from a source before passing it up to the sky. Um, thank you. I'm going to read 
read one more. Um, this is the last poem in the book. Um, I have a, a soft spot for books that end as if they're beginning. Um, so I've ended the book with a poem about my daughter's birth. This is called T minus zero. It won't matter if the water is hot or cold. It won't matter about the plastic tub for the placenta or which pajamas when you lie on a floor next to the lift. Trolleys splash rocky down corridors, each contraction, a red sun setting over, and in you rise out of water, his eyes catching you falling into the room when she swells into the water. A tree splitting to give way to lightning, her head like God, cracking a rock, a planet, a red sun rising blood, won't matter. Frog slither neck and shoulders and he in the sun, all kneeling, your hands full of someone's slick minute. God, when she comes, you won't remember if she cried because look, look at the day arriving. Someone is here. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Um, so I want to kick off the questioning, and, and I know like, Amy's really uncomfortable with questions, so I've got loads. Um, <laughs> And if you think of your own, please do write them down to ask at the end. We get 15 minutes at the end for those. I just wanted to well, start with a bit of a statement that you have a very unique and panoramic understanding of motherhood, both in its symbolism and its various realities. Can you talk a little bit more about that in context of the book? OK, right. I'm trying to work out whether to respond to the word panoramic or the word motherhood, because I feel like I could take this in two ways. Mm. Um, I think certainly I wanted to get across a different narrative about motherhood, one that I think um, most mothers are familiar with, but maybe we don't see a whole lot of in the kind of in the public domain. Mm. Um, you know, it's much more like kind of hushed conversations, even for example, in terms of what, what your body's like immediately after birth. Yeah. I remember meeting up with friends from NCT and having these kind of hushed conversations where we kind of say, my body's fucked, is your body fucked? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that silence um, of motherhood is, is yeah. so fascinating. It's over half the planet. Not that everyone's a mother, but, you know, it, it can fall to any one of us. And the thing is, it's so... Because it's so wonderful, it can feel shameful to kind of admit that it's also very challenging yeah. and very hard and transformative in ways that are both wonderful and mm. terrible and all of that is is part of it. Yeah, but you don't just talk about that in you know, motherhood in terms of your personal experience, but also, I mean, we were talking about the notes earlier, I've got some really weird questions. So I say in one of them, your father is a mother too, and I don't <laughs> mean share it, I don't mean it in a literal way, the father's sharing the role of the mother, but in terms of your personal mm. story and that, the effect of that. Because the grief, as I called it earlier, the pregnancy of grief kind of mm. runs through the book as well. Why did you want to sort of bring that into the collection? Um, well, I... So I lost my dad when I was nine, and it's... It's just been a hugely kind of formative thing in my life, so I've, I've always written about him. My mum would <laughs> confer... I mean, I've got so many dad poems. Um, I've got many more that didn't make it into the book, but... Um, 
when I had my daughter, I think a lot of things rose to the surface because for one thing, you're looking at this, um, this person who, you know, she's genetically mine. So I'm seeing things in her, I'm seeing my, my parents in her, I'm seeing my dad in her. Um, and you're, you're looking after the child, but you're taken back to your own childhood. And I think that's part of it. A lot of things rise to the surface where you think about how you were parented mm. and how those early years were. And, yes, um, you have that line, not childhood, all childhoods are hereditary. Yeah. Can you break that down a little bit for us? I mean, I feel a bit bad about that because actually I had a great childhood. I had a great childhood, you know, I had a great loving yeah. family. Yeah, of course. Um, but I lost my dad and that was, mm. um, I suppose, kind of overshadowed everything, really. Mm. Um, so, yeah, when I say that in the poem, I suppose, I mean that I'm hoping yeah. for something different for my daughter that will um, okay. will okay. be will both be around for a long time. So the, the Horlicks, I'm really fascinated by books that, you know, a collection that doesn't just kind of expound a theme and go into it, but has a sort of, reflects it in its form in some way. So can I talk a little bit about how the form of the book's been affected by the theme? And I'm talking about things in particular like, what is that poem called? Um, Mother 6000. Oh, yeah. And also, oh, what's it called? Um, See Also. So if you could ex talk about those poems mm -hmm. a little bit, because I know everyone would be like, oh, what? <coughs> <coughs> yeah, so um, in the book, I look at a lot of different versions of mothers and motherhood. Um, and mothers in extreme situations, um, but Mother Six Thousand is the is the mothership computer in the film Alien, um, who's quite a kind of nefarious um, presence, and um, and C also explores a lot of definitions of mum and mother and dad and father, and I found it really interesting, the more you look into it, that um, for dad and father, most of the definitions stay much closer to um, fathering, fathering, the kind of more literal um, definition, whereas for mum and mother, it kind of spiders out into all these many, many mm. definitions and we use it to, to mean so much more. Um, and I suppose we hold so many ideas of yeah. what a what a mother should be. Um, so I think when you become that thing, you're kind of kicking against all those ideals. And it's really interesting, you took the, the um, just, just a side note, but to take the AI from Aliens, because the whole of Aliens is an exploration of motherhood gone bad yeah. in a kind of way, isn't it? This, this huge vagina opens and all these eggs stick to your face. And, <laughs> and, you know, as a lesbian, that's exactly how I think motherhood is. Uh, <laughs> Um, but to be serious for a moment, so John mentioned right at the beginning a beautiful little intro saying one of the most anticipated poetry collections. And I'm curious to know, so when did you begin writing it? And is poetry the form for women who have a kind of interrupted lifestyle? Wow, what a question. Okay, so let's start with, when did I start writing it? Um, probably when I was pregnant. Um, so that's what, 2017? Okay. Um, I wrote a lot in that, I don't know, maybe three year period from being pregnant to having my child to her being a toddler. Um, 
I don't know. I think because I was so inspired by the transformation that was occurring in my life, which, yeah. um, you know, as storytellers, we're always attracted to that kind of transformation story. And um, so I just kind of wrote constantly then for a while when I had a lot of time where I was just like holding a sleeping baby, thinking mm. I couldn't really get out and do things, but I could just write so notes on my phone. You, was your poetry affected by that? I mean, the actual form of it, rather than what you were mm. saying, but the sort of, you know, how much you could get written. Did you find yourself being more distilled because you had to think quickly? I don't know. Um, <laughs> possibly. Make it up. Huh? Make it up. Make it up. <laughs> yes, absolutely, Joel. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Hit the nail on the head. So, um, <clears throat> so you finished your collection, I'm assuming. And then you handed it into Bloomsbury and it went through an editorial process. Mm. How much of the, the book you imagined remains here in this collection? Or how much, how much grew? How much did Bloomsbury, well, the Bloomsbury <laughs> mother to this collection, in a sense? I'm going to stop saying the word mother in a while. Don't worry. Um, well, the book kind of, in a way, the book became itself for them because the, um, it happened in quite a kind of a... a um, kind of a blessed scenario where I sent a poem into the White Review and Kayo Chingonyi, who was edited, right. editing, it, editing it, took the poem and said, are you working on a collection? Oh, right. And at the time I had quite a lot of poems, but I didn't have a manuscript as such. But obviously I said, yes, I do. I do, mm. Kayo Chingonyi. And um, <laughs> just give me two weeks and I'll send it to you. And then I kind of got everything together. And then and then it was, I think it was another year before these said we're going to take it it was quite a long uh there were a lot of gaps between emails and in that time okay. I sent it to a couple of poets and got some feedback and kept evolving it yes um and then yeah and then Bloomsbury got in touch and and took it and I think I mean I'm really happy with how where it's been there's a, there's there's quite a few poems that kind of we got rid of there's quite a lot of new stuff that was written almost at the 11th hour. Is that, that because in. you understood suddenly the arc of the collection? Um, is yeah, there an arc? I think... Is there an arc? I mean, I've read it, so I know, but is there an arc? I mean, I think so, but I, I don't know. I mean, as an editor, because I run my own press, I, I am all about the arc. I like, mm. I like an arc um, in a poetry book. And when I was organising the order of this, I spent a lot of time moving printouts around and... I don't know whether, as a reader, you'll look at it and say, oh, well, there's a definite arc here, but I, I feel like it's doing the journey I want it to do. Yeah. And I've always been attracted to non-linear narratives, so mm. I kind of like the fact that it starts in one place and then it kind of goes back and fills you in. It kind of leaps back in time, gives yes. you the backstory and then brings you back up to the present. That's the kind of story yeah. that I've always liked. And the final poem is kind of an opening. It's not an ending yeah. at all. It's like a beginning to something, something new. Okay, so just to talk a little bit more about form, um, I'm, I've always loved the cinema of your work, and you picked up on the word panorama earlier, so let's talk about both, both ideas. Um, how important is the visual language in your work? Um, I mean, I think it's kind of everything. Mm. I think that... Um, I think film is kind of underrated as a guiding influence mm. for writing. Um, because it's it's storytelling at its most um, 
I don't know, accessible yeah. in a way. And um, I think I always have film in mind when I'm writing and thinking about how I can drop the reader into the, yeah. the moment. And as an editor, that's something I always say to folks I'm working with is you don't want to be telling the reader about something that you've experienced and that you don't want them to feel like they're sitting with a friend that's telling their story. You want them to feel like they're in the moment and they're feeling it and they have space to have their own reaction within that. Absolutely. The pen is a camera. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but also you experiment. I really like the way you play around the invention of form as well. And there's a poem, which is a poem that I've known for quite a while called, remember this time, hip hip. Hurrah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this poem, why I really love it, is because it's, um, well, you, you can explain the story. It's based on a painting. But instead of writing a poem about a painting, it's written as a kind of descriptions, you know, that you get underneath pieces of artwork, fig one, fig two, that sort of thing. Can you explain a little bit about our process? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the painting is by um, Carol Apple. Uh, who's a painter that I love and a lot of his work is very kind of naive and childlike and has the appearance of um, like a like a kid's kids painting basically and one of his paintings Hip Hip Hurrah is a picture that I've loved for a long time and um, it's kind of this set of characters that look a bit like monsters but also like a family um, which is a whole interesting thing in itself um, there's a very small reproduction of the of the image in the book and um, I just was really drawn to write about this so I've um, the poems kind of split up into these vignettes that are descriptions of those those characters and the kind of family that I thought um, that might be and yeah. I think um, you know everyone's family is in some form dysfunctional isn't it even if you've had a great childhood and loving parents there's gonna you know um, not to get too larkin about it, but um, so I think the I think the painting kind of fitted with yeah, that. Yeah, and the whole book is really sensuous. There's a lot of visual language throughout it, and this sense of also of that panorama, but this sudden twisting, twisting around throughout. So um, my final question, because I'm aware we're running out of time, and these guys are eager to ask their own questions, as um, relates back to you being a publisher yourself. So you and Jake Wildhall, your uh, Husband, not girlfriend. <laughs> Your girlfriend, Jake. Um, I do call her my wife. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Founded Bad Betty Press, which is uh, a much needed injection into independent poetry presses within the UK. And I was wondering, because having worked, as you know, that spoken press as an editor for a while, how much you found that to work as an editor, editing other people and writing your own work, how much was that symbiotic? Or was it in conflict? Uh, no, so, uh, it's not in conflict, except in terms of, you know, time. Yeah, <laughs> time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think editing and working with Bad Betty Poets has probably revolutionised my writing, really. Made me better, made me, um, given me a greater and deeper understanding of what poetry can do. Um, because we, you know, we work with amazing writers mm. that we love and you always learn from the people you're mentoring, you know, yeah. you always get and, something and back in, from them. And poetry, there's a real sense that we're all in conversation with each other, even with the dead poets, you know. But for me, anyway, there's a sense that you're part of this yeah. really vibrant and really alive kind of community. It's always interacting with each other's works. And I feel like 
when we write something that perhaps that's what we get at the end of it, it's not just our stuff, but the, the culmination of that experience as you're writing a piece. Yeah, and I feel like quite a fierce, um, I don't know, love, I don't, not, not protect, protective is the wrong word because that implies fear, but like a, like a, like a motherly feeling for my poets and for their books yes. that I love so much. Yes. And, you know, and by the time you've finished editing a book, you've, you've read it a hundred times and you're so attached to it and to the writer. And so it's, um, yeah, it's quite a beautiful okay. and powerful thing. So I, I have to ask this question because I know there's a lot of proto-poets and writers in the room. What is your advice, both as a published poet and as an editor, to someone getting together their first collection or a pamphlet? I know two very different things. I mean, I've got a, I've got a workshop about this, but it's, it's like 90 minutes. <laughs> um, I don't know, really just... But basically get, tap um, into what right. people are saying online. If I, if I could say w one thing, I'd say think about the story that only you can tell. And it might not be, you know, it might not be a unique theme because there aren't really any unique themes, you know, motherhood, it's not... It's not unique, but your experience of that is unique. What's the thing that you can say about your theme that no one else can? Um, because that's what editors are looking for. Once we've got past, once we've got rid of the submissions that clearly aren't going to make it, you're then left with loads and loads of great work and you come down to what's what really, really unique, you. what haven't mm. I come across before. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, brilliant. So I imagine you've got a few questions of your own. We've got about 15 minutes for that. Do we have any volunteers? Or will I just stare at you for 15 minutes? Quite happy to. Yes, my love. Um, have we got a uh, roving mic? Thank you. Shall I do the running around? Oh. The running around. All right. <laughs> Hello. Thank yeah. you so much for everything you've shared with us. I can't wait to read it myself. I was really interested in what you were saying about the film Alien. And I was wondering if you could tell us some more maybe formative references across mediums. And I was also wondering if Julia Kristeva was a reference of yours. Ah. Um, ah, interesting. <laughs> um, not particularly, but um, with, um, with Mother 6000, um, I used a lot of different kind of formal um, found text for that. Um, so I used a um, Talk to Transformer neural network website, which um, a friend of mine was using with poetry and I got really excited about where you kind of start writing a sentence and then you hit a button and it generates loads of text and I found that really interesting as and I suppose that's a kind of a mothering of of content but it's feels random but it's not random it's really kind of bizarre um 
and then I also use found text from a um, um, an article about um, it's about aliens, but it's all alien film, but it's also about the word xenomorph and where that comes from. And there's kind of also a mix of um, some some of the script as well. And so it kind of took all this strange language from a few disparate sources and, and put them together. Do you use a lot of this kind of research within your writing? So it's not just you sitting alone, but you actively go out and find um, out things. Yeah, I think... Um, it's maybe more of the outlier than the norm, but certainly in that poem, certainly in C also. Mm. Um, and then I think there's a couple of others where I, I've done that more kind of process, um, process approach. Okay. Any more questions, people? Yes, thank you. Young God. Brilliant. Hello, Amy. Um, I love your work. I've loved it for a long time, and I really appreciate your honesty. I'm wondering about your Adrian Rich quote um, about sharing. Mm. And at the moment, um, when when hearing your poems, and I haven't read your book yet, I'm obviously going to buy the book and looking forward to it. The, it's a kind of a universal idea of what a mother might go through, like with the tiger and, and having the baby in your teeth. And the honesty that you bring to that is more about yourself. I mean, your poem about, you know, your cunt. <laughs> and when, and what I'm interested in is, <laughs> not your cunt, I'm not interested in your cunt. <laughs> what I'm interested in is, oh, somebody's turned the mic off. We're <laughs> about to start playing, playing you out with music. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, is 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 there a time when you're thinking as your you know your child or any one of us uh, you know grows older or or I mean because your dad he died and in a way that's an archetype isn't it a dead parent it, are there poems that you thought okay this is too personal I'm keeping it out or as your child grows older you know her personality are there things that you think I can't write about this you know that I want to be honest but there are, there are boundaries. I'm just mm. interested in, mm. as question. you go on, what your approach might be, that sort of dichotomy between total honesty and, you know, respect for other people's feelings or their reactions. Yeah, I mean, actually, um, it's interesting you say that. So before I wrote this book, I wrote a different collection, um, which uh, is never coming out. Um, which was about a very specific encounter. A small section of it is in my um, pamphlet and they're covered in gold light. Um, it's a very complicated story, but um, it's about somebody that I met in Colombia and it was quite a... Um, I can't really explain it without going into detail, but it's the most ridiculous story of my life. If we go to the pub afterwards, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> um, but it was... Um, I suppose it was a kind of traumatic experience and I wrote a whole book about it. Um, but at the end of it, I kind of realised that it wasn't my story, you know, in some ways. And a lot of it, um, mm. I'd kind of come into contact with someone who had lived through a lot of trauma and that was kind of playing out then in our relationship in a way that was really bizarre for me. But it was coming from her history and I... Um, kind of reached a point where I thought this actually isn't mine to give. Um, and although this book is very honest and very exposing, I'm sure there are 
things, you know, particularly about my, my daughter and my children that I'm, I won't be putting out there. Um, yeah, but then I, I wouldn't be talking about, <laughs> about that. So you it's never know what it is. It's but. an interesting question, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. Like allowing the stories yeah. that interact with your life. And what, so you're, what, what is your bottom line, do you think? Is it going to be something you, yeah, that's mine too. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I don't know. I think it's working out what, what belongs to you and what belongs to someone else, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and my daughter, you know, gets a lot of mentions in the book, maybe more than a lot of parents would, would do. Um, but she's so young, I don't think anything's, I don't think there's anything that's really revealing about her, you know, there's gonna be things as she gets older that, you know, that are gonna be her property that hopefully she'll feel safe enough to talk to me about that, are, you know, that are not gonna go in any poems. Um, so, uh, another question. Lovely humans. <laughs> I had basically the same question. Oh, okay. Yes, that's Thank you so much for your gorgeous reading tonight. Um, I was really struck by your your poem about, you know, kind of like erotic possibilities after motherhood. Um, I, I'm obviously from the United States where a lot of the discourse around mothering has kind of, it's like kind of taken a turn, right? I don't mm. know if, if, I don't know what happened during the pandemic, but like, you know, some of the latest titles are like mom rage, touched out. Like, <laughs> this is like the hardest job in the world. I hate it. Like, my body is never going to be myself again. Like, I'm never like, my cunt is never going to do anything again other than like birth a baby. So I, I just found this refreshing. Um, and I'm kind of wondering how you think about the interplay between you know, the mother and then, you know, kind of the erotic hedon, like, you know, that combination of psyche and eros that can still, like, flourish. Um, and I'm wondering where it is in your book. I haven't had a chance to read it. Um, but I'm just interested to hear more because it feels really brave to be able to say I'm still a body that wants more. Thank you. Um, I think... I've always written about desire. That's been, I don't know, just it's always been something I've wanted to write about. And um, when I had my child, you know, I wasn't really prepared for how much I would be transformed and my life would be transformed, but I didn't know that I would be also. And um, I think a big part of writing the book was, for me, was really trying to hold on to myself um, and that side of myself as a, you know, living, breathing, desiring thing that's not just there to care for someone else, even though that's now, you know, a huge part of my life, that there's something, you know, that fire hasn't gone out. Um, and I think it's, I think we need to write about that. Mm. Um, you know, otherwise what we left, we're left with kind of books of, you know, young people or, 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 you know, people without kids and the desire and then the moms that are just writing about, I don't know. You know, we have to, we have to say, hey, we're still full human here. Yeah. 360 yeah. all the time. It's quite a radical thing to do. 
And you wouldn't think in 2023 yeah, there would be anything radical at all about that. Yeah. And yet there is. Yeah. Okay, a um, couple more questions. Yes, son. Thank you. Nice to see you. Hello. Um, I'm wondering, you've talked a lot about how being a parent or a mother has influenced your poetry, obviously, with this collection. Has it, have, has it worked the other way around? Has being a poet influenced the way you approach being a mother? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. I think, like, I think if you spend time with my kids, you'll, you'll know that their parents are, are poets. <laughs> um, I actually, um, we did a similar event in Bath on Monday, and then the next day I was picking up my stepson, who lives in Glastonbury, and brought him back. And on the train back, um, we wrote a book together. Because he writes a series of books called Solomon's Adventures in Dragon World, yeah. um, which he loves, and we and I like do it on InDesign and we print them out, and mm. but um, but they're really nice. And so we like spent the tube journey writing this book. And Billy, my daughter, loves books, um, obviously because we love books and we read to her all the time. And she likes to kind of make little um, books, fold the papers over, and. Um, so I suppose, I mean, that's quite an obvious way. I don't know if there's a more kind of esoteric way that it comes through in, I don't know, in the way that we, we parent. I think, um, you know, and it's hard also because as a poet, a big part of your work life is um, evening, mm. evenings. And um, I don't know, and we're busy a lot and we have this big passion that in some, you know, sometimes for your kids, it's like a rival, right? And, um, but then we have to always think that we're, we're showing them that you can do a job that you're passionate about, which is like the most amazing privilege. Um, and I want them to know that, that that's possible. Mm. Okay, I um, think so we've got time for one more question, maybe two. Or just a bit of staring at us in an awkward way. Okay. Well, in which case, I want to ask you, would you read my favourite poem again, please, <laughs> at the end? Thank you. Well, yeah. So, Amy and I met many years ago, um, and this particular poem won the Verve Poetry Competition Prize, which I was judging, which is how we came to really um, connect. So, would you mind oh, reading this? Yeah. Um, and thank you. Thank you, Joelle. Um, Joel Taylor. <laughs> what an icon. Um, yeah, this poem is about being a teenage girl, which I think is one of the hardest things to be. It's called Every Girl Knows. I was never more than at 15. Sick and lovely. See the men jump out the street to check their shadow. See my high-rise skirt, glass tights, double-parked eyeliner, apocryphal name, smell of monthly embarrassment, suede platforms, scapegoat thighs, dandruff and blackheads, porn lips, skin lipstick, yid nose, cheats bra, cheap heart, Men were sick cave puppies, new teeth all over catching sun, rumbling like cars, 
prepping the school gates or milling Asda whistle wolves clawing for cookies, they would read my t-shirt. Where are you from? And how old do you think? And how about a fuckage penetrating my lopsided ego faith of the worst kind? See the men fall out the sky to kiss rumour. And my best friend was more. Unequivocally pretty, I would stand next to her and liquefy or reflect. She'd get free clothes and steak dinner. Pocket money jacuzzi hotel room with businessman. Manga face curved child method actor before the abortion. Worshipping her slaves. A confusion. Summer camp eves were a tally of kisses. Ugly me with six but only for telling. I slutted as a MacGuffin, closing the narrative of last year. 14. See the man with kind face and chub reading storybooks to me and brother. See his hand placing under dark the wax and wane of his fingers. See my atomic. See my roadkill. See my throb. Tick sunburn aerobic vomit soft breezing through the house wave like a giant whale. I am in the throat of crest of all downhill best days of your life. Enjoy it and stop crying. Look, it's top of the pops and cat slater. I was never more than when I was nothing. I was never, I never did or shh and no, I was a pen from melting. Objectivity teething on gobstopper lust I couldn't give away but I gave it. Wet every day like a spaniel's nose. Catching flies on the night bus, Pedalo Lake, Tube Purgatory, Blockbusters, Park Bench, Trocadero, McDonald's, Bridge Belly, Cherry Tree, Corner Shop, Rope Swing, Climbing Frame, all ironic joy but only wanted or worthless. I and the rest colouring ourselves in sticky paint and promise. Boys in their t-shirts and jeans bubbling destiny and if love wasn't boy flavour you just kept quiet. Love, who said anyway, who said love, no I only... If your mouth could sing all the animals out of the forest, you would, wouldn't you? We all method actors, bumping puny cocks for oil, waiting for the feels or feeling daytime soapy drama, but never feeling ourselves. Watch out, I am so hot. I can't even touch me in days and days of this and not one thing I would go back for. No, not one, did you know? If you put enough posters on your wall, you don't need to think, did you know? Masturbation is a food group. I am closing on hungry. Peel my upper lip back, baby. See how you roll right in. Um, Okay, Amy Aker. Thank you. Um, Someone, um, a, a, a really great... Poet called Alice has just written a poem after this. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's, and it starts, I was never more than at 57. Um, <laughs> and it's called No One Knows. And I'm, I, she sent it to me like two nights ago. I'm That's really excited. Brilliant. It's, it's brilliant. Oh, thank you all um, so, so much for coming you. and celebrating um, this, this extraordinary book. Obviously, we're going to be around for a while. Books will be available to buy. Amy's happy to sign. Um, for, thank you. Thank Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.